This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, and if you're new today, it's a good day to be new. We are at the beginning of a brand new series today, and what we're going to do this year is walk through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. I have wanted to preach through the Gospel of Mark really for many years. My heart has been captivated by this Gospel. Mark is the earliest of the four Gospels that was written. It was written in the city of Rome in about 64, 65 AD in a time of great persecution of the church. And Mark was a protege of the Apostle Peter. And so Peter was one of, not only one of the disciples, but one of the inner core. You remember Peter, James, and John had a very special relationship with Jesus. And so Mark is a very close eyewitness account of the life and ministry of our Lord that Peter passed along to John Mark, and Mark arranged it, and we have the Gospel of Mark. And so I can't wait to just lift up Christ. That's the goal of this series. The Bible says that when Jesus is lifted up, that our hearts are drawn to Him. And so we just want Sunday by Sunday for Christ to be lifted up, for Christ to be placarded before our eyes and for us to know Him better and to love Him more. And so today we begin the journey in verses 1 through 8, which is really about a a new beginning. We're at a new beginning of a year. We're in a new beginning in a series. And the first word in the Gospel of Mark, as we'll see, is the word beginning. God is all about new starts. So let's take a look at it. Mark 1 and verses 1 through 8 is where we're going to be today and follow along in your copy of God's Word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea, And all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. But He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, at the beginning of this series, we pray that You would bless our study as we walk together with with Christ through this Gospel. We pray that 
we would see ourselves not on the outside looking in, but that we would see that in each of these stories in the Gospel of Mark, that, that we are there, that we are a part of the action. And so we pray that you would speak to us today as we begin this journey. We pray that you would speak to us about the new creation that you have begun in Jesus. We pray that you would speak to us about the call that you are placing on our lives and how we can be swept up in this incredible drama of redemption, this new thing, this new beginning that you are doing in the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few weeks ago, I was telling you that in preparation for seeing the new Star Wars film, I, I went back and watched the, the first three and as I did, it was really interesting. George Lucas, who was the, the maker of the first three Star Wars films, grew up on old action movies, Flash Gordon type things. He, and he loved kind of the old, old action films. And when you watch the early Star Wars films, you'll see him doing kind of an old school filmmaker's technique. And the action is very, very fast-paced. You're going from scene to scene to scene very quickly. And whenever the scene shifts, you'll see literally sort of on the screen, it sort of rolls from one, you know, from one scene to another. The image uh, changes. It's, it's, it, the only thing I know to compare it to is like on, like on our phones. We, we've, many of us have gotten used to swiping on our phones. And so we move from kind of image to image like this on our, our screen. Lucas does something very much like that in the early Star Wars films. And it reminds me very much of the Gospel of Mark. Because Mark is a series of action scenes. It's the fastest paced of all four Gospels. And his favorite word is immediately or at once. And so what we're going to see is that the action is incredibly fast paced. And we're moving from scene to scene to scene very quickly with Christ. But unlike a movie... In this gospel, we're not like an audience that is just sort of looking on. To really understand it, you have to understand that you are a participant. That as we look at all of these stories in the gospel of Mark and journey with Christ and the disciples through these stories, what you need to understand is that you are in every one of these stories. And so you'll get the most out of this gospel if you'll ask that question week by week. Where am I in this story? Now another theme in Mark is the journey. Mark likes the expression, on the way. Jesus is on the way. He's on a journey. The disciples are journeying with him. As disciples, we are journeying with him. We're on the way with Jesus. And today we begin that journey in these first eight verses. Now, we see here sort of a preview of coming attractions in a way, because the themes that are brought out in the opening verses are themes that we're going to see repeatedly as we walk through the pages of this gospel. The first theme is new creation. New creation. Verse 1. The beginning 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, in English, the word beginning is the second word, but in Greek, which is what this gospel was originally written in, beginning is word number one. It's the first word, the first thing that Mark says in this gospel is beginning. What's he saying there? What's his point? Is he just saying, well, this is the beginning of the book that I'm writing? No. Much more. Mark is saying that in Jesus Christ, the world is experiencing a new beginning. He is saying that God is doing something new. God, through Jesus, is bringing about a new creation. Now, what other verse in Scripture do is the word beginning very prominent in? Yes, my said Genesis 1-1, and you're right. This is intentional on Mark's part. Mark is intentionally, in the first verse of his gospel, he's intentionally going back to the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, God's creation was perfect. It was without sin. It was without death. But by the third chapter of Genesis, sin has entered the world. The first human beings have sinned. And with sin comes death, dysfunction. Violence, selfishness, brokenness. God's perfect world has been broken. God's perfect creation has been marred. But what Mark is saying in, is in, in beginning his gospel, in the same way as Genesis 1-1, Mark is saying, but now, but now in Jesus, God is remaking this world that was broken. God is bringing... The first creation has been marred by sin. But God, through Jesus, is now bringing about a new creation. New Testament scholar James Edwards, in, in commenting on Mark 1.1, says this, For Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. Through Jesus, God is bringing about a new creation. One day, Christ is coming again to banish sin and death and bring about a completely new world. But until then, what's He doing? He's making people new. He's making people like you and me new. In the midst of this broken creation, God is calling out and making people into new creations. So, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we are... New creation people who are living in a world that is broken and marred by sin. Now, what are the implications of that? 
What are the implications of being a new creation person in a world, in a, cre- in, in a creation that is still broken and marred by sin? Well, Paul goes on to tell us here in verses 18 and following, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The Bible tells us that we are stewards. Now we think about stewards as being stewards of money and so forth, and that's all true. But the Bible tells us here that we're stewards of something else. We are stewards of The message that God has given us, that he has entrusted to us in verse 19. He's entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We are living in in the middle of a sea of people who are unreconciled to God. And so as reconciled people, God has entrusted to us the message of how they can be reconciled, how their trespasses will not be counted against them. That's the message of the gospel, which we're going to talk about in a moment. So, as an ambassador for Christ, representing Him every day, you've been entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation, this message of reconciliation. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with what God has entrusted you with? Are you going to bury it in the ground? Are you going to hoard it? Are you going to keep it to yourself? Or are you going to share it? In 2016, are you going to share it or bury it? What if you began praying for people in your life who are unreconciled to God? God has strategically placed people in your life and in mine, family members, friends, people that you work with, neighbors, people that you go to school with, people that are within your sphere of influence. What if you began to pray for them specifically by name? And what if you woke up every day this year thinking of yourself as an ambassador for Christ, as an agent of God on mission for Him to help other people be reconciled to him to experience new creation the way that you have new creation is one theme that we see here good news is another verse 1 again he says this is the beginning of the gospel now when we hear the word gospel as christians we may know more about what it actually means but in our culture when, when they hear the word gospel, they might think about a style of music. They might think about the f- first four books of the New Testament, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I can promise you, when Mark's readers heard the word gospel, that's not what they were thinking. Because the word gospel was a very, it was a commonly used Greek word that simply meant good news. The gospel is good news. It is, it is an announcement of joyful good news. And it was not really a religious term. 
it was not a term that was coined by Christians. So in Mark's world, whenever a great victory was won on the battlefield, what would they do? There's no internet, there's no TV. They would send heralds out to all the cities and villages, and they would go in and they would proclaim, they would announce the good news. We have won, we have conquered. When, for instance, a new emperor was born, again, heralds would be sent out into the cities to announce that we have a new king, a new Caesar. Uh, this is a, just this joyful news. Everything now is going to be changed. In fact, there's an inscription that of a, it's a calendar inscription that was written uh, about the time of the birth of Christ, just a few years before his birth. It's now in the British Museum in London. Um, it, it looks like this, but... This is part of what this calendar inscription says, and Mark, no doubt, would have heard this. It says this, The birthday of the god Augustus, this is Caesar Augustus, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of good news for the world. Now, the heralds would go out throughout the Roman Empire, and they would proclaim this, we have a new sea, Augustus. He's a, he's a god, and, and, and his birth is the beginning of good news for the world. And people would pretend to celebrate, but privately, they would roll their eyes and say, Yeah, right. Everything's going to go on, just as it did before. Mark, in verse 1, is, is very, very intentionally saying that this gospel that he is about to unfold is really different. This gospel is really something to celebrate. Why? Because the world's rightful king has come. The world's true king has been born. The world's true king has come to redeem. The world's true king has died so that sinners can be reconciled to God. The world's true king is risen so that we may have life abundant and life eternal. The world's true king is coming again. And this is really something to celebrate and this gospel, when it is believed, really changes lives. The good news. The gospel. Another theme that we see in Mark is this one. Son of God. Son of God. Verse 1. Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, in Mark, we're going to see several different titles for Jesus. Jesus is referred to in Mark as rabbi, as teacher, as Lord, as Christ, as son of David, as son of man. But the most important title for Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is the Son of God. And what Mark is doing here in verse 1 is he's letting us in on a secret from the very beginning. Because throughout the ministry of Christ, even his closest disciples really don't get this. 
They are slow to understand it. They really don't understand it completely until after Jesus has risen from the dead. But Mark is letting us in on it from moment one of this gospel. And, and in the very key moments of Mark's gospel, we are going to see this title coming up. And people don't understand always who he is. But of course, others do. God understands it and God proclaims it. So next week, when we look at the baptism of Christ, Jesus comes out of the water after his baptism and what happens? And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. Again, at another key moment, at the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens? A cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And so the Father proclaims Jesus as the Son of God. Who else knows the identity of Christ? Even before the disciples do. The demons. We're going to see Jesus casting many demons out of people in this gospel. And many times when Jesus will cast the demons out of people, the, the, the demon-possessed person will be so, so possessed by demons that the demons are actually speaking through the mouths of the people who are being cleansed. And, and often, what do they say when Jesus approaches? Mark 3. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. In chapter 5, as Jesus is healing a demon-possessed man, the, the demon possessing this man and speaking through him, cries out with a loud voice saying, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. You see... As part of the supernatural realm, the demons know very well who Jesus is. They know before human beings understand. They know the true identity of Christ. And whenever he gets near, they are terrified. They tremble. They shudder. And then we see at the end of this book that a Roman soldier, a centurion, is going to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. Where does it happen? It happens at the cross, chapter 15. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this, in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Now this is fascinating. Because this guy is a Gentile. He's a pagan. He's a Roman soldier. In fact, he, he, made, he was in the, de, the detail of Roman soldiers that had crucified Jesus hours before. He may have been one of the very ones who drove the nails into his hands and feet. But as Jesus is on the cross, God is opening this young soldier's eyes to the true identity 
of who was hanging on the cross before him. And in this climactic moment, as Jesus breathes his last, this soldier cries out, truly this man was the Son of God. And Mark tells us that in an, in, also in Jerusalem, in that very moment, something else happened. The curtain that was in the temple, that, that surrounded the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple, where, where the presence of God was supposed to dwell. At that very moment, as the centurion proclaims, truly this man was the Son of God, at that very moment, the curtain surrounding the Holy of Holies rips from top to bottom. Well, listen, the tearing of that curtain, And the proclamation of the centurion that Jesus is the Son of God. You know what? They're both sending the same message. And that is that the presence of God, once mysterious, once hidden, has been revealed in Jesus, the Son of God. And you can know Him. And new creation can begin. It's come through the curtain. Son of God. Now, these opening verses are about John the Baptist as well. His story is very, very important. You know, the birth story of Jesus, all the details of his birth and everything that we just celebrated, you only see that in two Gospels, in Matthew and Luke. But the story of John the Baptist is in all four. He is a huge figure. And we see several things about him in these opening verses. First of all, we see his manner of simplicity. He has an unusual dress and an unusual diet. He's clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He, he was in this way very reminiscent of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. But John's simple simplicity in his dress and his diet were very much in contrast to the softness and the self-indulgence of the religious leaders of his day. And he was going to have for them and for all the people uh, a message that was, that, was, uh, that was going to be edgy as well. It was going to be a, a message of repentance. And so we see in verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. To repent means to turn around. Many of the people that John was, was speaking to, they didn't think of themselves as people that needed to turn around. They were thinking, because of my birth, because of my circumstances, and you know, he was preaching to, to the Jewish people, God's chosen people, they were thinking, hey, I, I don't need to repent, I'm already in. John says, no, <laughs> you need to repent, turn around. The time has come, God is doing something new. And it's time to get ready. And so his message is repentance. His mode is baptism. Verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. Now, in ancient Judaism, there were ritual washings, ritual 
baths and things like that. And sometimes people would immerse themselves as part of a ritual washing. But there was no baptism like the baptisms that John was doing in the River Jordan. This was so new, so novel, that John becomes known by this practice. He's referred to as John the Baptist. And we'll talk about baptism more next week. But the important thing to understand is that then and now, it, it's, an, it's an outward sign of the inward repentance of the heart. And then we see John's motive for what he was doing. His, his motive of exalting Christ. John was one of the most famous people in the world in his day. He was a household name. But John was interested in exalting another name, the name of Jesus. Because what does he say? After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus comes, what does John say to his Followers in John 3.30, he must increase, speaking of Jesus. John the Baptist says, he must increase, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. May that be said, may that be our motive and our passion in life as well. For us to decrease as Christ increases in our lives. But there's something else that I want us to see about the ministry of of John the Baptist. And, and this, may be, this may be new, but it's a very important part of this text, and I think it'll shed a lot of light for you on it. John, uh, Mark begins to talk about the ministry of John the Baptist by quoting from the Old Testament in verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. A couple of things are very interesting about this prophecy. It's saying that God was going to send a messenger to prepare the way for who? Not for the Messiah, but for God himself. You see, Jesus is, both, is coming as both Messiah of Israel and Lord of the world. And so John the Baptist is the, the one who is going to be preparing the way. He's going to be out in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord to come. And in the context of this prophecy in Isaiah, the messenger that was going to be preparing the way was going to be preparing the way for the Lord to come and to lead the people in a new kind of an exodus. Now see, Mark is grounding the story of Jesus in the story of Israel. Okay, He is grounding, he says, he says what I'm about to tell you in this gospel is the continuation of what God has been doing in the Old Testament story, in the story of Israel. 
Now, what was the, what was the, the story of, of Israel, the one that they would retell every year at Passover? Every year at Passover, the, uh, a son in the household would ask the father, Father, why is this night different from all other nights? And the, and the father would, would retell the story of the Passover, the story of the Exodus. And he would, he would, he would retell the, the, the story of how, how lambs were killed, the Passover lambs were killed. And that the death angel would pass over the houses that were, that were under the blood. And of course, we understand that these Passover lambs were pointing to the ultimate Passover lamb who was going to be slaughtered at, in the Gospel of Mark, who was going to be killed. Jesus is slaughtered. Jesus is killed on Passover. Jesus is the, the ultimate Passover lamb. Are you under His blood today? Are you covered by, by His sacrifice today? Do you know Him today? Is he your Passover lamb? Okay. So they would tell the story of the, of the Passover lambs that were killed. And then what happened in the Exodus? God said, you're going to flee Egypt. You've been in slavery. I'm going to set you free. I want you to leave Egypt. Separate yourselves from Egypt. Get out. And then what happens? God takes them through the water, right? Through, through the Red Sea. And he takes them into the wilderness. And in, in the wilderness, how are they led? They are led. God provides what? He provides a pillar of fire to guide them to the promised land. Now what's happening in the ministry of John the Baptist is that in a way, John is picturing this. John is saying, God is coming. He's going to come to you and he's going to lead you in a, a new exodus. And so he's calling them to repent. He's saying, hey, it's time to leave Egypt, folks. Leave your life of sin. It's, you, you've been enslaved by sin. Get out of Egypt. Flee. And when you repent, you come to the waters. The waters of baptism. And then... As you move toward the promised land, there's instead of a pillar of fire, the Holy Spirit is going to come to you. You're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. The fire of the Spirit is going to guide you and empower you as you move to the promised land. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this about, about the ministry of, of John the Baptist. Wright says this, Every year at Passover time, they recited the story of the exodus from Egypt, telling over and over how God rescued Israel from Pharaoh, bringing them through the Red Sea and away across the wilderness to the Promised Land. But instead of simply hearing the words and remembering the story, John was turning it into a drama, a play, and telling his hearers that they were in the cast. They were to come through the water and be free. They were to leave behind Egypt, the world of sin in which they were living, the world of rebelling against the living God. They were looking in the wrong direction and going in the wrong direction. It was time to turn around and go the right way. It was time to stop dreaming and wake up to God's reality. You see, the ministry of John the Baptist is like a wake-up call. 
It's a wake-up call for Israel. A wake-up call for the world. And remember, you're in the story. You're not on the outside looking in. You're here. Every story that we'll cover in Mark, you're in the story. So ask yourself, where am I in the story? Where do I need to wake up to the new thing that God is doing? You see, John the Baptist is telling people, it's time to wake up. It's time to get up. The Lord is at hand. Are you ready? Get up. Get right. Wake up. Where are you sleeping today? And where do you need to wake up to the new thing, the new beginning that God is doing and that He invites you to be a part of? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity for a new beginning in Christ. Lord, as we have turned turning the page on a new year, we pray that you would remind us that, that you make all things new, that you can make things really new in life because of your presence with us. And so, Father, help us to, to wake up to the new thing that you desire to do in our lives and in our church this year. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand and, and sing and God's working in your heart and you'd like to pray with someone and maybe you've got questions about the gospel or questions about our church family or just being a part of what God is doing here. Uh, We would love to to welcome you. Our altar is open for anyone who would like to, to come and pray. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. 
Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.